Please take your Bibles and turn, if you would, to Acts chapter 1, the book of Acts chapter 1. Book of Acts, chapter 1. I mentioned uh, last week that it is uh, my custom to preach a couple of topical sermons at the beginning of uh, the new year uh, before re-engaging with whatever sermon series we've been in previously. Uh, we've been in an expositional study of the Gospel of Matthew. I hope God willing to return to that series uh, next week. Last week, I preached a sermon that was designed chiefly to comfort and encourage our congregation. Uh, that sermon was on the resurrection from the dead. Uh, this week is still at the start of a new year. I'd like to preach a sermon designed to excite, uh, stimulate, and challenge our congregation toward greater engagement in one good work in particular. I'd like to call our church from the Bible toward a renewed commitment and a focus on corporate prayer. Uh, this is something the elders wish to emphasize at the start of a new year. You're going to hear more about this at our elder retreat debrief, God willing, on January 29th. And together, we thought it would be a good thing to have a sermon dedicated to this theme of corporate prayer uh, this year. As I look back through old sermons, I don't think I've ever preached a sermon on corporate prayer. Oh, and I'm sad about that. It's an immense subject in the Scriptures. The word corporate, maybe you're not familiar with that language. The word corporate, as I'm using it, I don't think like a, a business or something like that. Um, the way I'm using it is in the older sense, corporate uh, as pertaining to a united group of persons. When I think of corporate prayer, I mean corporate as pertaining to a united group of persons. So when addressing the subject of corporate prayer, I'm not thinking primarily of the individual Christian's private prayers, though much that I say this morning will have bearing on that and would influence how we think about our private prayers. Uh, but the burden of this sermon is on the corporate prayers of God's people in the context of the church's gathering. So I'm thinking of our Sunday morning worship gathering. I'm thinking of the two evening prayer services we have uh, every month on the first and third Sunday evenings of the month. I'm thinking even of our small groups. So that's not the whole church gathering. In our small groups, we do have smaller gatherings of Christians where the feature of all our small groups, or one of the features of all our small groups, is this whole issue of praying together for and with one another. Uh, as I thought of how to best address the subject of corporate prayer, it occurred to me there are many places one might go uh, because this issue is uh, covered and addressed in many places in the Bible. It's a vital subject. So I knew I'd have to be selective this morning for a one-off topical sermon. Uh, we might have considered this subject from the vantage point of the Old Testament where it was evidently a priority of the Old Testament people of God to assemble for prayer, to gather for prayer corporately. Or we might have considered many of Jesus' statements on the priority of prayer. We might have considered especially his statement where he says, my house shall be a house of prayer. Uh, that should summarize what the house of God is like. It is a house of prayer. Or we might have turned to the epistles, to the many exhortations and admonishments and encouragements from the New Testament writers about the priority of prayer. We might have looked at 1 Timothy 2.1. 1 Timothy 2, First Timothy, the epistle of 1 Timothy, uh, is written to instruct God's people in how they're to conduct themselves in the church of the living God. That's why the book is written. And in a book written about how we're to conduct ourselves in the church of the living God, uh, 1 Timothy 2.1 begins, first of all, 
I desire that prayers be offered, that supplications be made. The matter of first importance, as it were, is that my people pray. That is how they're to conduct themselves in the household of God. Paul, am I relying on this microphone now or the headset? This microphone? Okay, great. Then I'll proceed on that knowledge. There are numbers of places we might go uh, for considering the issue of prayer. Numbers of places uh, that we might consider. All of these things I mentioned would be profitable to consider, but we can't cover everything in one sermon. So I'd like us simply to limit our attention to one book of the Bible. I'd like us to limit our attention to the book of Acts and consider the descriptive accounts were given of the place that corporate prayer occupied among the first believers and consider what we could learn from them by example. Uh, you will sometimes hear Christians in our day, especially younger Christians, uh, there, is the, there is this desire, I guess in an effort to shed tradition that can be constraining, uh, to return uh, to the example of those radical first disciples. We want to go back to what the first Christians were doing. I'm all for that. Uh, so let's go back this morning and consider what were the matters most important to the early Christians and consider the radical example they set for us, particularly on this issue of corporate prayer. If you wanted to read the book of Acts and you wanted to itemize or identify the primary traits and features that mark the first Christians, a few things would emerge very quickly. Uh, one would be their commitment to the gospel and to apostolic doctrine. They were committed to the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. Uh, another would be their commitment to nurture uh, community among themselves in local churches where the hallmark would be love toward one another and care for one another. Uh, you would also see an emphasis on missions and getting the gospel to people who never heard the gospel before. All these things would emerge pretty clearly as emphases of that early church, the early churches. Uh, but one of the things also that jumps off the page when you consider the testimony and example of the first Christians and the first local churches is their united commitment to gatherings for corporate prayer. That will be the theme of the message this morning. I'll have five points this morning, and I'll just mention uh, I'm especially in the debt of Pastor Stu Johnston. He's one of the pastors of the church that uh, sent this church out. I'm especially in his debt. Uh, he preached a sermon on this theme actually five or six years ago. It was one of the first sermons ever preached in our church, and uh, I'm drawing heavily on lessons that I learned in that message from Brother Stu. Five points this morning. First of all, point number one, the church was actually birthed in the context of the first disciples uniting with one another in prayer. The church was actually birthed in the context of the first disciples uniting with one another in prayer. Uh, when the book of Acts begins, uh, where are we in the story? Uh, where are things when the narrative in Acts picks up? You may know this, you may not. Luke and Acts were both written by Luke the physician, and there are two volumes that are supposed to go together. Uh, he's telling a bigger narrative than just the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He wants to tell us the early Acts of the apostles. They go together. Uh, and uh, what's happened by the time we get to Acts 1? Well, Jesus, of course, has lived. He's carried on his ministry. He's died on the cross for the sins of his people. He's, rose, he's risen from the dead, not yet ascended, when Acts 1 uh, begins. And he tells his disciples that they're to wait for him. Uh, they're to wait to receive the promised Holy Spirit who will come in power upon them, uh, who will enable them to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, even to the uttermost parts of the earth. And then he ascends to the Father. Uh, we next see the disciples 
gathered in an upper room in Jerusalem. First time in three and a half years they'd been apart from their Lord for an extended period of time. Uh, he has ascended. They're gathered in an upper room. We're told there are about 120 of them. And what are they doing? Well, they wait for the promised Holy Spirit. Verse 14 tells us. Look at verse 14. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer. Together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. A few things to observe here. First note, they weren't passive while they waited. They were actively seeking God and engaging him to fulfill his promises to them. They were praying. Although they were waiting for the coming of the promised Holy Spirit, they weren't just sort of lounging around at home. They were stirring themselves to pray, to engage God and to ask him to do the things for them that he had promised to do, that he had committed to them. Uh, second, observe the emphasis on corporate prayer, the corporate nature of prayer. All these were together with one accord devoting themselves to prayer. In other words, they were united in this work. They weren't just off in private praying each in their own houses. Uh, they were committing themselves, all of them, to assembling for this united purpose. Uh, and the sense you get is that their assembly, uh, the fact that they all purposed to gather, that all of them came together for this united purpose, added a certain depth and intensity and seriousness and priority about what it was that they were doing. I think this is a, a common sort of human experience. Usually people gather for the things that they consider most important. Families gather for the things they consider most important. Communities gather for the things they consider most important. What are the two things that always bring people together? Weddings and funerals, right? We see these as significant life events, significant life moments, and people come together for those significant occasions. Uh, uh, my family, the DePrima family, there's seven siblings in the family. I have six brothers and sisters. It's very hard to get all of us together. Uh, but it reveals a lot about us, I think, those things that do bring us together. There's certain things we're not going to bother to all change the schedule for to make sure we're all there for. But there are some things that are crucial. We're all together. When we're all together, it communicates this matters to the DePrima family. Uh, we got all the in-laws and the grandkids and all that kind of stuff. We all come together for this purpose. Well, the same thing is true for churches. What churches unite together for is an expression of their greatest priorities. What they gather together to do, what brings the whole family together, is an expression of our priorities. And we can see that in this church. What was their priority? They assembled to pray together. Third, observe that this involved commitment and resolution on their part to pray. Uh, we read, they were giving themselves to the work of prayer. The English word is devotion. They devoted themselves to prayer. What is devotion? It is resolute, disciplined, committed action. Uh, friends, prayer, if it is ever to be engaged with any real seriousness, earnestness, and consistency, it will require on the part of God's people resolute, disciplined, committed action. It will require devotion. It doesn't just happen. We don't just drift into prayer. We schedule prayer meetings on the calendar. Uh, we schedule times when the church will be together to pray to God, and we devote ourselves to that work as these early Christians devoted themselves to that work. So they're praying together as they wait for the promised Holy Spirit. As we read on in chapter 1, we see it's in that context that the Lord uh, calls a new apostle uh, a lot of people will emphasize, you know, they cast lots for 
uh, who the next apostle was going to be. Uh, but that's not exactly the whole story. What they did is they prayed and asked God to direct the lots upon whom, uh, upon the one whom the Lord would have them serve as the next apostle. So they seek God in prayer to reveal to them who should uh, be the one who replaces Judas. And of course, the lot falls on Matthias. They call a new servant uh, to the work in the context of their corporate prayer. The next thing that happens in the narrative is the Spirit of God descends upon them. And they're empowered to boldly witness to the gospel. And then, of course, you get Peter's great sermon in Acts chapter 2. Well, under this first heading, the simple point I wish to make is that as the first disciples are waiting to begin their mission, what is highlighted is that they gave themselves to gathering together for prayer. It's the first activity, at least the first recorded activity, of Jesus' new church after his ascension, which I think is significant. Uh, the new age has started. The great commission has been given. Jesus has ascended to his Father. The church has been given their marching orders. What's the first thing that they do? They schedule a prayer meeting. They decide, we're going to assemble. We're going to gather together, unite ourselves together to seek God's face as a church and to engage him to do the work that he has promised to do. Okay, point number two. That's point number one. Point number two. The newborn church grew spiritually and numerically in connection with their continued devotion, continued devotion to regular gatherings for prayer. I'll say that again. The newborn church grew spiritually and numerically in connection with their continued devotion to regular gatherings for prayer. You get to Acts 2. Peter preaches his great sermon, uh, and his audience, we read, is cut to the heart, and they cry out, what must we do? To be saved. And Peter tells them in verse 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then we have this beautiful description uh, of uh, that newborn church in Jerusalem. In verse 41, we read, so those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Can you imagine? Uh, 3,000 souls added that day to the church. Uh, they became members of the church, part of the church. Uh, this new church was born in Acts chapter 2. And then we have this description of what that new community was like. What did they do? What was their life together like? What were the uh, marks of the church in Jerusalem? As we quoted in Acts chapter 2, we have in verse, 30, excuse me, verse 42 a description of their life together. We read, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Of course, this verse is a summary. It's not telling us everything that the church did, but it's summarizing the major characteristics and features of life in the early church, in the church in Jerusalem. And what things emerge to the surface is kind of the distinguishing marks of this church. Well, first we read, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to apostolic doctrine, to understanding the gospel and understanding the word of God. They gave attention to the teaching and preaching of the word. Uh, secondly, we read they were devoted to fellowship, uh, probably the inner life of the body of Christ, to community, uh, to knowing one another and caring for one another and bearing one another's burdens and sharing all things in common. They devoted themselves to fellowship. Thirdly, we read they were devoted to the breaking of bread, uh, probably a reference to the Lord's Supper, to gathering for communion. And then fourthly, we read, fourth distinguishing mark, that they were devoted to the prayers. 
Apparently, one of the matters of chief importance to the newborn church in Jerusalem was a conspicuous commitment to assemble for prayer. Uh, Some suggest that the definite article there, the prayers, uh, is an indication that it's a reference to kind of set times for prayer. Uh, This is when they would come together for particular occasions for prayer. It's not just everybody praying in their homes. This is the prayers, uh, the prayers that the church perhaps put on the calendar. Uh, These are prayer meetings, scheduled events. Uh, Whether or not that's the case, we do know the church observed prayer meetings and scheduled times for prayer because that's exactly what Acts 3 tells us in the very next verse. Let me read uh, in Acts 3, verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. That would be 3 p.m. in the afternoon. Uh, And apparently that was the time the church designated for prayer. Uh, That was the time they had designated the people of God to assemble together in the temple to seek God's face at the hour of prayer. Uh, They put it on the schedule. It was on the calendar. It was one of the church's stated meetings. Three o'clock at the temple, be there, we're going to pray together. Well, back in Acts 2, at the end of the chapter, we see that the newborn church is devoting themselves to the apostles' doctrine, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And it's in that context we read the church is prospering. Uh, This is a picture of a healthy church, a thriving church, a prospering church. Uh, They're growing spiritually. They're growing also numerically. The Lord is adding day by day those who are believing the gospel and being saved. They're experiencing the blessing of God. And gatherings for prayer are part of the picture, at least, were given of the flourishing church in Jerusalem. This was a distinguishing feature, a present dynamic of their life together, a devotion to gather together with brothers and sisters to seek God's face. Well, the obvious point is this. We should appreciate that when it came to the early church, to the Lord's first disciples, indeed the first church, they regarded corporate prayer, that is to say gathering for prayer as a church, as one of the most important things they could devote themselves to. All right, point number three, point number three, moving through Acts. Point number three, gatherings for prayer were a pivotal part of the church's strategy for overcoming obstacles to the progress of the gospel. Gatherings for prayer were a pivotal part of the church's strategy for overcoming obstacles to the progress of the gospel. In Acts 4, Uh, Peter and John are preaching Jesus among the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees. They become aware of this, and so they take them into custody and they throw them in prison. Eventually, Peter and John appear before the council, their trial, as it were, and though they're threatened severely, they make clear they're not going to stop preaching Jesus. They were taken into custody for this very purpose. They say, we're not going to stop preaching Jesus. Whatever you do to us, if you let us out of here, we're just going to preach Jesus again. Well, the the priests and the Sadducees realize they have no case. They can't detain them uh, for any credible reason. They don't have a case. They have to let them go, but they do so only after warning them not to preach again. And that they're to be on notice. The subtext is that if you keep doing this, we're going to kill you. In fact, that's exactly what they do to Stephen just a few chapters later. Because he's preaching Jesus, they put him to death. That's the subtext of the threats here. So Peter and John are released. What do Peter and John do Uh, after they've just been threatened in this way to stop preaching Jesus? Well, they call a prayer meeting. They assemble the disciples together, and they unite with one another in prayer, and they ask God 
to sustain their boldness and to protect them from harm and to cause the gospel to speed forth. Look at verse 29 of Acts chapter 4. They prayed together, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. In the face of opposition and various obstacles to the spread of the gospel, the church's instinct was to gather for corporate prayer just to bring it all to God and to ask him to give them boldness, uh, for, to ask him that, that he would give them access to lost people, or that the Lord would topple and shatter all the obstacles and hindrances to the word preached and to the gospel going forward. Uh, they asked that the Lord would give them courage to advance the faith in all boldness, that they would speak the word with love and with truth and with courage. They seek the Lord in their efforts in preaching the gospel. A similar thing happens in Acts chapter 12 uh, as James is killed and Peter is thrown again in prison. We read in verse 5, so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. It seems that the great apostle has been silenced. Uh, it seems like the work of God is being hindered. What does the church do? They gather together to pray earnestly. And what were they asking God? What were those prayer meetings like? Lord, deliver your servant. Lord, don't allow him to become afraid by this latest uh, unleashing of persecution. Oh, Father, help us if we lose our brother, that one would soon fill his place and that we as a church would be faithful to spread the gospel. I imagine they were praying those sorts of things. Afterward, when Peter is rescued by the angel, he escapes from the prison. We read in verse 12, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. Uh, Peter is in prison. The work of the gospel is threatened. What does the church do? Well, it looks like we need to get together and pray about this. Uh, we need to pray that the Lord will overcome these obstacles that have been put in the way of the gospel. What's the point? One of the things we observe in the life of the early church in terms of their commitment to corporate prayer was that they viewed corporate prayer as a pivotal part of their strategy to overcome obstacles that were laid against the progress of the gospel. Uh, friends, our situation, although different in some ways, is really not that different. Uh, in our day, there are all kinds of obstacles and hindrances erected against the progress of the gospel. What are we going to do? Well, we should gather to pray uh, that the Lord would speed ahead his word that the Lord would remove barriers here in our community. Uh, what is uh, the person, according to Jesus, who is hardest to bring into the kingdom of God? It's the rich man. It's harder for a rich man to go through the eye of a needle, right? We live in the richest nation in the world. There are all kinds of hindrances to the gospel here in our own place. We may not experience overt persecution like this in the form of being thrown in prison, but there are hard hearts. Many obstacles in our society, in our culture, in our community erected against the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what should we as a church do in the light of those hindrances and those obstacles? We should imitate the example of the early church and we should pray. We should pray that the Lord would be pleased to speed ahead his word, that he would give grace and success to the gospel 
as preached. And we should not just pray only for our community and the ministry of this local church. We should pray for this to happen all over the world. Uh, you know many of our missions partners, some of their faces are out there on the wall in the foyer. We have them come in from time to time to present. Uh, they're encountering all sorts of obstacles against the work of the gospel that they're carrying on. I hope that many of you will come uh, January 15th, our next evening gathering, uh, for prayer. Uh, our brother and sister Evans and Jeanette Walton are going to share about the work that they're carrying on in Africa. Uh, so much to be encouraged by, so many challenges and obstacles. And wouldn't it be a holy thing, an imitation of the early church, that we would assemble and hear from our brothers and sisters what's going on there and engage ourselves as a church to pray for them, to seek God's face and to ask Him to remove barriers and to remove obstacles and to exalt His Son and to empower His servants and to speed forth the work of the gospel in that place in Africa. Okay, point number four. Point number four. The church's leaders were expected to lead the way in the arena of prayer. The church's leaders were expected to lead the way in the arena of prayer. Now, this is a smaller point. It's there in Acts, I think. Not quite as visible as the other points I've been making, but it's a point that should be made nonetheless. In Acts 6, for example, uh, as the work of God is abounding in Jerusalem and the church is multiplying, there arose a number of practical needs in the church. Uh, one had to do with the administration of benevolent care uh, for widows there in Jerusalem. And there arises a complaint that some widows are being overlooked and the apostles gather together with the disciples and they determine uh, that what they're going to do, we think, is to develop a new office that will oversee the administrative demands of the benevolent care of the church. We think this is the beginning of the office of deacons in Acts chapter 6. And one of the reasons why this office is founded and these seven men are called to give themselves to this work is so that the apostles, the leaders of the church, could devote themselves, could devote themselves to the ministry of the word and prayer. Why is it that these seven men are called by the disciples uh, to engage themselves to care for needy members of the flock. It's because we cannot allow the leaders of the congregation to be distracted from their main work of the ministry of the word and their devotion to prayer. But why is it that the apostles set up these deacons in the first place so that they could not leave off the work of praying? In other words, those who were tasked to lead the church were to see prayer as one of the two big emphases of their work. Again, the statement's not exhaustive, it's not saying everything that the leaders of the church are called to do, but these two great matters rise to the top of the list. Uh, that the word would be ministered among the people, and that the leaders of the church can give themselves to prayer. Prayer privately, and also leading the church in the ministry of prayer. And what we see repeatedly throughout the book of Acts, be interesting on your own to go through the book of Acts and just right in the margin every time you see leaders of the church uh, praying themselves or leading the church in the ministry of prayer. In Acts 1, 14, 1, 24, 4, 24, 8, 15, 9, 40, 14, 23, 16, 25, 20, 36, 21, 5, 22, 17, and 28, 8. And that's not even half the references to the apostles gathering for prayer, to lead the church in prayer. 
Now, they're praying over individuals often. They're praying over whole churches. They're praying over councils. They're praying over gatherings of the elders. What we see consistently in the leaders in the early church is that they gave themselves, devoted themselves to prayer. And the very simple point I wish to highlight is this. In terms of spiritual leadership among the people of God, few things rise higher in terms of importance and priority than prayer. Uh, Brother, you want to be a leader in this church or in another church. Uh, We expect you to give yourself and devote yourself to the work of prayer like the first leaders of the church in Scripture did. Uh, Young men who aspire to pastoral ministry. Brothers, I tell you, if you cannot be bothered to gather with the church for its appointed prayer meetings, do not expect the elders of this church to take your aspirations to pastoral ministry very seriously. Uh, I've I've told this story, I think, once or twice in a sermon before. Uh, I had to be admonished on exactly this point. Uh, When I was at uh, the church that sent us out, when I was a member there, uh, I was single, I was in seminary, I was working a job, and uh, that church assembled every Wednesday night for prayer. That was their their normal custom. And, um, you know, um, I guess everybody's busy. I've never met anyone who says they're not busy. Um, And I allowed myself to think, as a single guy, no wife, no kids, part-time job, eh, full-time seminary classes, I allowed myself to think I'm just too busy, too busy uh, to attend the church's prayer meetings. And so I didn't go. I was like 22, 23 at this time. And one of the church's pastors pulled me aside at one point and said, brother, you aspire to an office whose work is described as the ministry of the word and prayer. Can you not be bothered to give one hour a week to gather with God's people to pray? And the brother was right. Uh, I felt rebuked by that. I can't be bothered to assemble with God's people to pray, and yet I hope one day to lead God's people in this very work. Oh, I was rebuked by that. And I, I would say for all those who aspire to leadership, we should hear that. There's a truth there. God's ministers, the man of God, the the shepherd of the flock, those who are called to lead God's people, they need to lead out in this. They need to give themselves and devote themselves to the work of prayer. You may read big books of theology. You may be up to date on the latest evangelical headlines. You may even be intelligent and competent to teach, but if you don't understand something of the priority of prayer, you're not ready to be a leader among God's people. The leaders in the book of Acts, the model they set for us for pastoral leadership, for church leadership, is that they're always praying. And they're regularly calling God's people uh, to prayer together. Okay, point number five. And for the note takers, I will read all five points again. Number one, the church was actually birthed in the context of the first disciples uniting with one another in prayer. Number two, the newborn church grew spiritually and numerically in connection with their continued devotion to come together regularly for prayer. Number three, Gatherings for prayer were a pivotal part of the church's strategy for overcoming obstacles to the progress of the gospel. Point number four, the church's leaders were expected to lead the way in the arena of prayer. And point number five, it was in the context of corporate prayer that godly gifted servants of Christ were set apart for the work of missions and ministry. It was in the context of corporate prayer that godly, gifted servants of Christ were set apart for the work of missions 
and ministry. I'll be brief here. Uh, we've already seen this happen once in the book of, or in Acts chapter 1, when Matthias is set apart to serve as one of the apostles. It occurs most famously in Acts chapter 13 with the church in Antioch where uh, for the first time Barnabas and Saul are set aside for missions work. This is the beginning of the missionary movement as Paul, excuse me, Saul and Barnabas are set apart. We read in Acts 13 verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. It's not an overstatement to say the worldwide missions movement began with prayer. Uh, it's in the context of corporate prayer that godly gifted servants of Christ were set apart to engage in the work of missions and ministry. And should we be surprised? Uh, the Lord Jesus himself said at the end of Matthew chapter 9, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Uh, those called to works of missions and ministry, they're set apart. They uh, come to life through the church's united efforts to pray that the Lord would give us such servants. Uh, friends, do we think that God is going to raise up the next generation of missionaries and church planters apart from our determined efforts to pray precisely that he would do so? Uh, we speak often about revival and wanting to see a revival again. I'm going to be talking tonight in the English church history class about a revival that came to England. Well, do we expect to see revival in our land and renewal among our churches apart from God's people crying out to him and asking him for the same? Friends, the Great Commission is advanced by prayer. Missionaries are sent by prayer. Churches are planted through prayer. It was so with this church. I hope each member of this church is cognizant of the fact that if you experience any blessing for being connected to this church, you are in the debt of the saints of Grace Reformed Baptist Church in Mevin, who prayed and prayed and prayed for years and pray still for the health and progress of this church. Uh, you're in the debt of the Saints of Mount Vernon Baptist Church in Atlanta, Georgia, or Emmanuel Baptist Church in Coconut Creek, Florida. Uh, you're in the debt of churches in Roanoke, Virginia, Lynchburg, Virginia, Louisville, Kentucky, Baltimore, Maryland, Annapolis, Maryland, Wilson, North Carolina, Rocky Mountain, North Carolina, Greensboro, North Carolina, Roxborough, North Carolina, Greenville, South Carolina, Clemson, South Carolina, London, England, and a host of other congregations in whose presence I stood as one by one in the beginning days of our church plan, brothers and sisters engage God in prayer for this church. The, the, the fruitfulness we have seen over the past five or six years uh, is the result, the instrumentation God used has been the commitment of local churches to pray for this congregation. Uh, we're in their debt. The Lord has used the prayers of his people to sustain the ministry and the work of this church. I'm, aware, I'm well aware personally of a, a small cohort of older women whose names I could give you. Uh, they've been praying for my ministry for 15 years now. I wasn't a pastor when they started praying for me. Uh, and they have prayed uh, practically weekly for me uh, for 15 years. And I am intensely aware uh, that if anything in my ministry stands up on the day of judgment, it's held up by their prayers. They've committed themselves to pray uh, for the work of the gospel. Friends, this is well documented in the history of revival. But when God wants to bring revival, he starts with prayer meetings. 
Uh, do you know what was so often, like, like almost always, uh, a feature of many of the great revivals that we like to talk about? Uh, it usually involved teenagers committing themselves to come to the prayer meetings. When young people started gathering to pray, not always, not always, but when you have these glorious revivals that we talk about, the elders right now, we read books together, we're reading Jonathan Edwards on revival, and uh, Jonathan Edwards saw this glorious revival in New England, and he talks about when the teenagers started to gather, when the young singles started to gather, when the young couples started gathering for the prayer meetings. That's when revival broke out. And one of the fruits of revival was that young people came and they engaged in the prayers and they sought God's face. Young people, you wanna do something radical for Jesus? Come to prayer meeting. Uh, enough of the social media activism, turn down the Hillsong music and come and pray. The Hillsong music's no good anyway, just leave it alone, okay? <laughs> Uh, come and pray with God's people. Enter into the prayers. You don't need to pray yourself, but some of you may pray yourself. And come and bring life and vitality to the assemblies of God's people to pray. Prayer meetings are the engine room of the Great Commission. Prayer meetings change the world. The heroes of the kingdom of God are the fairly unknown and anonymous saints who don't do things like I'm doing right now. But those who week after week, year after year, stirred themselves to get up and to gather with the saints to pray. All of this gospel advanced the world over. All of this gospel work is held up by them. God is sovereign, but our sovereign God uses means, and the instruments and means he uses are the prayers of his people to advance the work of his kingdom. Well, I close by talking about Charles Spurgeon. I talked about him in the equipped class, might as well talk about him now. Uh, prayer meetings have perhaps had no greater advocate in the history of the church than C.H. Spurgeon, great preacher in London. Uh, some of you perhaps are aware of his book, Only a Prayer Meeting. I've read from that a few times, uh, even in our prayer meetings here. A collection of 40 addresses that he would give to stir his congregation to pray, kind of recorded over the years. Uh, Spurgeon started attending prayer meetings regularly when he was just a teenager in Cambridge as a new convert. Uh, he was faithfully present, even when there were only a few others on hand to join with him in prayer. At the age of 17, he became the pastor of a small church in the village of Waterbeach, where he gave the church's prayer meetings the highest priority. And he would maintain this attitude toward prayer his entire life and ministry. He'd maintain this attitude when he arrived in London to pastor the New Park Street Chapel, eventually became the Metropolitan Tabernacle. He was there to revitalize that church. And the church was revitalized and eventually became the largest church in the Christian world at that time and was perhaps the most fruitful church in evangelical history. Of course, the extraordinary effect of Spurgeon's preaching is well known and well documented. God used his preaching in amazing ways. But many of those who were in the church before Spurgeon got there, been there maybe for decades, and then were there for some time after he got there, if you ask them uh, what's the clearest evidence that you're seeing and in the midst of a peculiar work of the Spirit of God, they would say it was not to be found in Spurgeon's preaching, but in the prayer meetings, which began to be attended upon with greater zeal and devotion by the congregation under Spurgeon's leadership. Spurgeon himself maintained throughout his life that the authenticity of a work of the Holy Spirit could be measured by the attitude toward prayer which it produced. The authenticity, the genuineness, the reality of a work of God's Spirit can be tested 
by the attitude toward prayer which it produced. Describing the sweetness and spiritual intensity of those early prayer meetings when he first came to London, revival began to break out. He said this, I can never forget how earnestly the church prayed. Sometimes they seemed to plead as though they could really see the angel of the covenant present with them and as if they must have a blessing from him. More than once, we were also awestruck with the solemnity of the meeting that we sat silent for some moments while the Lord's power appeared to overshadow us. And all I could do on such occasions was to pronounce the benediction and say, dear friends, we have had the Spirit of God here very manifestly tonight. Let us go home and take care not to lose his gracious influences. Then down came the blessing. The house was filled with hearers, and many souls were saved. I always give all the glory to God, but I do not forget that he gave me the privilege of ministering from the very first to a praying people. We had prayer meetings in New Park Street that moved our very souls. Every man seemed like a crusader besieging in the New Jerusalem. Each one appeared determined to storm the celestial city by the might of intercession. And soon the blessing came upon us in such abundance that we had not room to receive it. Now, on another occasion, uh, Spurgeon would often have visitors that would come that want to hear him preach on a Sunday morning. And there were some enthusiastic young American uh, uh, preachers. They had come to hear Spurgeon preach. They arrive at the uh, tabernacle early and they want to meet Spurgeon. Spurgeon was kind enough to receive them and he shows them the sanctuary and he says, would you like to see our boiler room? And they said, no, that's not what we came here to see. The boiler room in those days, Victorian England, uh, steam powered ships, you have the boiler room in the ship, boiler room in factories and things like that. And so just, no, I really want to show you my boiler room. It's in the basement. Hey, why don't we go downstairs? And they go down to the basement, he opens the door and there are three or 400 saints praying before the service started that the Lord would bring blessing in the context of the preached word. He says, this is my boiler room. This is what powers the work of this church. That saints have committed to assemble themselves to pray. Brothers and sisters, we may not see the fruitfulness of the Metropolitan Tabernacle, but there's no reason why we should not be marked by a similar devotion to prayer. We may not see, that all, we may not see all the apostles saw in those early days, but we can be committed like them to seeking God's face and to give ourselves that same devotion that has marked the people of God throughout the centuries. We can all find reasons not to pray. There's a million good reasons not to pray that we come up with. Some of those reasons at certain seasons, they may actually be good reasons not to gather when the church assembles. Nothing wrong with people missing prayer gatherings because they commute from too far away or they have a job that requires them to work on the time when prayer meetings happen or they can't drive at night, or they suffer from some other limitation that keeps them from the prayer meeting. There's nothing wrong with missing prayer gatherings for those reasons. But some reasons are not good reasons. It has been said that one of the greatest uses of Netflix and social media and video games and online shopping and sports entertainment will be to demonstrate beyond any shadow of a doubt on the day of judgment that no one neglected prayer because they just didn't have enough time. Uh, I got a screen time report on my phone. I keep meaning to shut it off because it discourages me. I got a screen time report every Sunday morning on 8 o'clock. It tells me how much time I spent on my phone this week. Do you know what that report reveals to me? I've got plenty of time to pray. If there's prayerlessness in my life, oh, I don't have an excuse. 
I'm spending plenty of time on the phone, doing whatever people do on the phone. I don't think Judgment Day will reveal that most of us prayed too much and recreated and rested too little. It's frequently the testimony of godly saints when they approach death, when asked if they have any regrets, they will often say they wish they had prayed more. And we should all take heed uh, from those who are near to their eternal rest. But I don't want to primarily guilt anyone into prioritizing prayer. That's not a good motivation. Friends, we should be excited by the privilege that is ours. The God of the universe invites us to address him and to speak to him. Through the merits of his son, he says, come close. What, what do you want? Ask of me. Do you want to see more missionaries raised up in the gospel to go forward? I'm pleased to do that. Come to me, the Lord of the harvest. Ask me that I might send out laborers into the harvest. I want to use your prayers to advance the cause of my church. What do you want? More, more unity and love in the church body? Come, ask me of that. Come, ask for the blessing. He invites us to draw near to him. And friends, we have such open access. The living God hears us. And he invites us to come. And he pledges that he will hear us and receive us and often will do for us the very things that we have asked him to do. May all of us esteem the great access we have to prayer, the great access we have to God through prayer. May we esteem it individually in our lives as Christians. May we be a church that esteems it corporately by often assembling together, looking to God and asking him to do for us the things that he's promised to do. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are instructed by the example of the faithful saints gone before. Uh, we look at the mighty work you did in the book of Acts, recorded by our brother Luke. We see what marked uh, that early church in circumstances far more difficult than most of us face today. And yet we see their devotion to seek you and to plead with you, to engage with you in the context of prayer. What a beautiful thing. Uh, Father, we pray that you would instruct us to imitate their example. We pray that your house here at Emmanuel would be a house of prayer. Uh, that we would commit ourselves uh, to uniting together with one accord, gathering together, seeking your faith for the things that we need, for the spread of the gospel in our community, and for the spread of the work of the gospel throughout the world. Uh, Father, we pray that all of us would commit ourselves more and more, earnestly with zeal, to the work of prayer. How we thank you that you, as a loving father, invite your children to come to you, to make all of our wants and wishes known, to pray as we prayed earlier in this service, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, I pray this morning throughout the generations of this church, we don't know what your plans are for Emmanuel Church. Sometimes you bring lights into existence for a short time and then they're gone. Sometimes you're pleased to cause the lights of your churches to burn brightly for generations. Whatever your plans are for our church, we do pray, Father, that you would stir the leaders of this church and the members of this church to give themselves, as long as we bear that name, a church of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would give ourselves earnestly to the work of prayer. On behalf of the saints here at Emmanuel, on behalf of the lost among us and in our community, on behalf of the progress of the gospel in your church throughout the world,
We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.